One of the uh, most egregious effects of slavery is that it destroyed black self-worth. And so one of the uh, aims of, of black theology is to kind of rebuild uh, black self-worth. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are discussing Black theodicy with Ingram London, a PhD student studying Black theology. So what is Black theodicy? It is looking to answer the question of where is God in the midst of suffering, specifically chattel slavery in America. The question of theodicy tries to hold together three truths. God is omnipotent, evil exists in the world, and God is loving. But how can all three be true? How can God be both loving and all-powerful and yet allow horrendous evil to exist? We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. You can follow me at Kendra R. Snow with an X. But right now, this is AdventNext. Ingram, I am so glad to have you on Advent Next today. Um, today we're talking a little bit about uh, what you're working on for your PhD, and I'm excited to have this conversation, especially for Black History Month, because it's a question that I think you know a lot of people have and a lot of people are wanting answers to. And so you study something called Black Theodicy, and I just want you to give us just a rundown of like what is Black Theodicy and what are the questions that it's trying to answer. Sure. So yeah. So black theodicy is basically it's a it's a one of the major subdisciplines of black theology. Um, so I, I know you did a previous episode on, on black theology uh, and kind of looking at James Cone. So James Cone is the father of black theology, and essentially what black theology is it is an attempt to uh, do theology to talk about God to study God from an African American perspective. Um, so what, what do we mean by that? So when I, when I say African-American or black, what I mean is a, a people group that has had a very um, similar um, experience in, in terms of uh, having an ancestry that has gone through uh, the Middle Passage and American chattel slavery uh, here in, in North America. And so that's what I'm uh, uh, primarily speaking about when I say black theology. Um, and I believe that's what, what Cone was uh, primarily speaking about as well, the descendants of, of African-American slaves that were brought here. So black theology has a very long history. It actually began before James Cone, but the academic, um, I, I guess you could say, beginnings of, of black theology uh, comes from, from him. Um, the where black theodicy comes in is that there are a couple of major subdisciplines within black theology. So you have black liberation theology, which you, you talked about a, a little bit in your previous episode, um, where essentially what black scholars are trying to do is to establish the theological foundations for um, activism, for social justice, uh, and basically uh, activities that black people can engage in in order to, to end um, black oppression. And then you have this other uh, area which, which needs a, a lot more development, uh, which is black dignity. So one thing that Cone said is that slavery, one of the uh, most egregious effects of slavery is that it destroyed black self-worth. Mm. And so one of the, one of the um, uh, aims of, of black theology is to kind of rebuild uh, black self-worth, especially in circumstances where we may not be able to express the, the imago Dei, the image of God and agency and all these different things, not being able to express uh, those types of things to, to their fullest because of these situations that we may be subjected to in terms of oppression. And then you have black theodicy, which is a, a major component of, of black theology, and that's, that's what I study which, which is essentially trying to address the, the problem of theodicy, which I'll define in a moment from a black perspective uh, once again. So what is the problem of, of theodicy or what is theodicy? So theodicy 
I guess to give a, a formal uh, definition, I have a, a note here. So uh, the formal definition is it's the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. So essentially to break that down in, in layman's terms is that there are essentially three things that um, Christianity and you know, really theism in general um, proposes, three different propositions. So one of those propositions is that God is omnibenevolent, that he loves everyone. Another proposition that's put forth in, in Christianity and that most Christians teach uh, from scripture is that God is omnipotent, meaning that he's all powerful. And then there's another aspect of theology that is undeniable, which is there is evil in the world. And so what some people have said is that those three propositions cannot all be true at the same time. It, it causes a, a conundrum, a problem. How can God be all loving? How can he be all powerful? And yet evil still exists in the world. Yeah. Uh, especially evil in terms of suffering uh, of yeah. God's creatures. So with that, when you talk about black theodicy, well, how, how do you, what, how, how does this, how does theodicy, how does it morph into black theodicy? So black theodicy is looking at the question of the problem of evil, the problem of suffering from a black perspective in the sense of if it's true that God loves black people, which we affirm as, as black Christians, and if it's true that God is all powerful, which we also affirm as black Christians, how is it that black people have suffered the way that they have suffered through, throughout history? And we'll probably talk about this a little bit later as well, but it's not just suffering, but it's also something that uh, Marilyn, I believe her name is Marilyn McCord uh, Adams, she's a, an Episcopalian uh, priest and theologian, she coined the term horrendous suffering, which are mm. types of sufferings that people go through that essentially it's, it's as if your entire life and your existence is uh, defeated by evil. So you are mm. defeated in life by evil. Your, your whole entire existence is engulfed by evil and there's nothing good or a positive value in your life, at least that you can see as a result of that experience. So that's, that's the type of evil that, that Black theodicy is trying to, to address. That is so important, too. And one, okay, I want to say something, but I also would hope that you could expound a little bit about on the development of black theology and black liberation theology. I know I did a very cursory, I'm not as studied as, on it as you are, and so I think it'd be great to hear some of your perspectives on this. But I think just in, in kind of looking at the suffering aspect, I think a lot of times people look at suffering as there is a redemptive value to it, right? That that sometimes we relate to it and say, you know what, I went through this, but I learned so much and I'm really thankful to God that I had that experience, right? And I think sometimes we want to find meaning in our suffering, but there are some sufferings that are so horrendous that it's like there's nothing redemptive about it. And in that case, you ask, why would God allow this to happen, right? Right, right. So... So, yeah, so you got two questions there. <laughs> two Sorry. Points. So, so the, the first point, like how did black theology develop? So black theology, as I said, it, it has a long history. It, it actually is uh, before Cone. So black, black people have been doing theology uh, since there have been black people, right? So <laughs> everyone does theology in, in some way. Um, but in particular, in, in this context of, of black theology and the African-American experience, I would say that black theology actually begins on the slave ship. It begins with the moaning, the cries, and the, the, the asking of why. Why did this happen to me? Why was I captured? Right? Why did God allow this to happen? And so we know that there were some Christians who were captured, you know, African Christians who were captured and, and brought to America as slaves. It was a very small percentage, but you have some Christians who on those slave ships who were crying out to God. About 10 to 15 percent of the uh, Africans that were brought here were Muslims. So they're already very familiar with a monotheistic God, the Abrahamic God. They're also crying out to Allah asking, why did you allow this to happen to us? And then you have the, the rest uh, of the individuals on the slave ships who would have practiced, you know, any type of form of religion. Some were monotheists, some were polytheists, some were engaged in traditional 
you know, ancestor worship and that type of thing, but it's still the same question, right? Why have higher powers allowed for this to happen to, to me? And that's a theological question. So I would say that black theology actually begins on the slave ship um, mm -hmm. and with various traditions trying to, to ask and answer that question of, of why this suffering is, is being allowed. Now, once they get to the shores of America, uh, most of them eventually convert to Christianity, and that's a long process as well. That did not happen overnight because of various uh, interesting laws <laughs> that different colonies had. Uh, uh, for example, uh, English common law said that you could not enslave another Christian. Um, mm. Well, it, with that, uh, many colonies, uh, and, and including their, the slave masters within those colonies, they were very reticent to actually allow um, the slaves to convert to Christianity. So they, they did not want um, different uh, Christian preachers and pastors uh, to, to evangelize their slaves. And so they, they had various reasons for that. One, they said that you know, uh, Christianity is a very complex uh, and, and sophisticated religion that, that Africans would not be able to understand anyway, so you don't need to evangelize them. But, it, but really what was all behind that was they did not want to get into a legal conundrum where they thought they might have to actually free their slaves. And so later on, I believe it was the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, was the first colony to do this, but they basically uh, instituted a new law that um, becoming a Christian would not change your social status. And so after that, it was uh, a lot of slave masters. They then began to allow their, their slaves to convert to, to Christianity uh, in mass. And what you have is that uh, two uh, arms of the body of Christ are basically living side by side. So you've got the, the white Christian church in North America, but then now you also have the black Christian tradition as well uh, growing upside along the white church. So that's, that's where you have, I guess you would say, black Christian, uh, <laughs> black theology from a Christian perspective is, is coming into its own at that point. Because now Christ, uh, black Christians, uh, the, the slaves are able to have their own worship services. Sometimes they have their own preachers. And of course, they preach one thing while the slave master is watching and then they preach something else <laughs> when, when they're just by themselves and they dwell on the Exodus narrative and they dwell on Luke chapter 4 where uh, Jesus proclaims his messianic mission, which is to liberate the oppressed. So mm. you, you've got these two different uh, uh, arms of, of Christianity just side by side, but preaching very different gospels. One is preaching slaves obey your masters and the other one is saying, uh, that, that God is, is coming to, to deliver us like, like Moses. So that's, that's where black theology begins. Black theology proper as an academic discipline, uh, as you said, it, it starts with, with James Cone in, in the late 60s. And he was basically, in, I guess you could say, inspired or, or driven to desperation by the, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And um, for a lot of people, when they saw uh, Dr. King assassinated, they began to question um, his approach to liberation from a Christian perspective, especially um, in light of the critique of, of Malcolm X from, from, uh, from the Nation of Islam, from an Islamic perspective. So the difference there being that, of course, Martin Luther King was uh, all about nonviolence and, and, and peaceful uh, non-violent uh, non resistance. Uh, but then you have uh, Malcolm X, who is by any means necessary, <laughs> we need to liberate ourselves. And so what Cone tried to do was to see if he could take elements from both of those traditions, the, uh, the Malcolm X tradition, which would morph in into the Black Power movement with Stokely Carmichael and others, and also retain this uh, a, a undeniably Christian uh, approach to, to liberation, which is the, the, the nonviolent resistance. Yeah, so that's, I, I that's the development of black theology. Yeah. I want to ste step on that. I know we have another question pending in, sure. in the queue, but I, just to develop that idea, because I, I think it's really interesting. It seems like he really wrestled with like, where's the ethical uh, line? You know, like that, that, that might not be as clear as we once may have thought of like, 
this idea of pacifism and, you know, peaceful protest. But when you look at, you know, the Civil War or when you look at different periods in biblical history, like the Exodus, that God did use, you know, some type of external force, um, violence even, right? To, to especially, right? Like, uh, the, 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 the 10th plague, uh, the plagues, but also the civil war, like that was kind of a, that was a very violent, uh, form of liberation. And right. for him to develop a sense of like, where is Christianity in the midst of this? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So you, of course we have Christ's words of turn the other cheek and, and go the extra mile and, and those types of sentiments. But you also have, and this is where black theology, this is the value of black theology. Black theology comes with a worldview or some presuppositions that magnify things in the text that for some reason other people can't see or it's very difficult for them to see. And so one of the things that, that black theology magnifies is the Exodus narrative, and it also magnifies Luke chapter 4 and really the entire uh, prophetic tradition of the Old Testament of, of calling to account those who are in the ascendancy, the elite of Israelite and, and Judah, Judahite uh, society and their oppression of, of the poor. So with that lens, we're able to see a, a different uh, aspect of, of Christ where it's it's not in conflict, but it's just keeping in mind that Jesus is, is a entire person. He's both a meek and mild, you know, lamb of God, but he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah as well. So mm-hmm. keeping both of those aspects uh, in, in balance is, is very important. And that's what black theology does. It brings back this aspect of Christ as not just the, the lamb, the sacrificial uh, lamb, but also the judge, the, the king, uh, the victorious conquering Christ that, that we see throughout the scripture as well. So we see that in uh, some of the references that you spoke of in regards to the liberation of, of the children of Israel. We see that um, the captain of the Lord of hosts in the book of Joshua, the angel of the Lord throughout the, the Old Testament, who uh, often has a sword in his hand and these different things. Uh, and of course, we see the, the depictions of Christ in, in Revelation as, as a conquering king. So these these things are, are what the black theology tradition brings back into theology as a whole and says, hey, we, we've forgotten this aspect of, of Christ and this work of Christ as being a liberator and defender of the oppressed. Right. And I think it's so important because, you know, I, I think people always want simple answers. And there are some things that you cannot have without tension. Right. Like, how is Christ the meek and mild lamb? But how is he also the line of the tribe of Judah? And to be able to take those balances and then apply them actively into a present situation, I think, you know, to just say, well, we're just going to exclusively be pacifists. And I've heard people talk about this within Christianity, like even if my even somebody broke into my home, I was going to murder my wife. I would not lift my hand. I would have to uh, ask the Lord to just protect us. And I don't know if that's like, I don't know if that's a correct theology, right? So I'm glad that it's bringing more of this perspective of like, okay, maybe, you know, this absolutist, quietist, pacifist approach is not, uh, you know, a practical way to live out your theology. And also it, it stops giving the loophole for people to stop participating in certain more social movements by taking the the strictly like we can only act in a passive sense and that we'll have to wait for a miracle and do nothing. You know? Right. Right. And, and in reality, especially from, from our tradition of, from an Adventist perspective, when you really think about it, the, the great controversy, which is, a, you know, the Adventist meta narrative, our, our worldview, so to speak, it, it actually necessitates, for human beings to actually exercise their agency and do something in regards to to evil uh, and and oppression. Now, what that looks like, that's up for debate, and it may look different for different people. For some people, that could be a a, a protest march. For others, it may be writing an article or something like that, or or just having conversations with people to change opinions and, and thought patterns. But I don't think we can rule out uh, necessarily even the use of, of, of force, at least in the sense of self-defense, 
Um, I'll just bring this example. There's a quotation uh, that I'd like to share. It's, um, it's from the writings of one of our, our pioneers, um, uh, Ellen White. And some people believe that she had uh, the prophetic gift. And, and so that would uh, obviously make her messages even a little bit more authoritative than just a, a common uh, individual. But she says she's commenting on uh, the Union troops uh, in regards to their, their sacrifice that they made in the Civil War. She says that God saw the blot of slavery upon this land. He marked the sufferings that were endured by the colored people. He moved upon the hearts of men to work in behalf of those who were so cruelly oppressed. So we see God is active actually in during the Civil War and leading up to the Civil War for the liberation of black people because he's moving upon people's hearts to do something. And then she says the southern states became one terrible battlefield, the graves of American sons who had enlisted to deliver the oppressed race are thick in the soil. Many fell in death, giving their lives to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that were bound. So what I'm going to say is a little bit radical, but Ellen White was in favor of black liberation theology. So from that statement alone, I think we can, we can conclude that um, there's more work to be done. And that's uh, the work that I'm doing, actually, is trying to look at these different statements that Ellen White has made um, in conjunction with, with uh, principles from Scripture in order to build a, a black theodicy. But here we see clearly that she is saying that essentially the Union troops were doing the work of Christ, quoting Luke chapter 4, proclaiming liberty to the captives and opening the prison to them that were bound. They were doing the work of Christ in, in taking up arms against the South. So what, what do we do with that? Uh, that's, yeah. It's hard to say because she yeah. also discouraged Adventists from engaging in warfare. So... I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But at the same time, we, we do see that there is, at least in some circumstances, a, a place for the use of force. And uh, we definitely need to be fighting against evil and oppression, whatever forms that that, that may take um, that we yeah. may choose to engage in. Yeah, I, I think it makes the answers a little more messy. And I think truth always looks like that, right? I think when you have yeah. something too clear cut, maybe that's how you know <laughs> it's not really truth. There's something missing. Uh, kind of getting back to this question of that we had in Q earlier about uh, black theodicy and what do we do with suffering that is non-redemptive or that appears non-redemptive in a sense of like this, th 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 for the people who are experiencing it and going through it, that it's so horrendous that you don't, there's no, it doesn't feel like there's any redeeming value to it. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question to, to answer. Um, but I, I think that as Adventists, we have something to contribute to that conversation. It does not give the, the, the answer. I, I want to be clear about that. But it gives plausible scenarios, plausible environments um, to where we can actually deal with those those propositions. How is it that God says that he loves me, that he's omnipotent, and yet allow <laughs> X, Y, and Z to happen to me? Um, so I, I think that, for one, we need to be careful with the concept of uh, suffering as being redemptive uh, and to begin with. Uh, a lot of the early black theodicies were based on this concept that, that suffering is redemptive. And you, you have some very strange ideas, or at least they sound strange to us to, today. they almost uh, masochistic where it's like uh, God allowed certain the American chattel slavery to befall African-Americans because he was uh, attempting to, to save us through, through this means. So he, he wanted us to suffer these things in order to, to redeem us and to purify us and, and, and even make us uh, the Christian par excellence, that there would be no Christian <laughs> greater than the African-American. And so there, there's that tradition. And, and then you have this tradition where it's, well, you know, the more we suffer in this life, the more that we'll be rewarded in, in, in heaven or, or something like that. And that's, Okay, <laughs> there may be a little bit of truth in these things, but at the same time, I have to agree with Cone 
that it almost inevitably becomes a sort of legalistic approach to salvation in which you try to earn it through suffering, which on its face is a denial of the gospel. So we, and we want to stay away from that, right? So we don't want to think that we can actually earn our, our salvation. It's only through Christ's sufferings that we, that we are healed, right? By his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53. So we, we want to be careful of, about that notion of, of redemptive suffering. Now, where suffering could become redemptive is in the sense that if we suffer and it awakes us to the fact that others are suffering, Okay, so that we can relate to their suffering and then act on their behalf to try to alleviate uh, or, or ameliorate or even eliminate their suffering. In that sense, it can be redemptive uh, because you become the, the hands and feet of, of God in the world and, and show people, hey, there's another way uh, of life that God wants to offer humanity. And in that sense, mm -hmm. it becomes redemptive. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I think at some point we'll go into like, you know, when we're looking at theodicy and we're looking at, and you're mm -hmm. answering this question, the two spectrums that uh, are on there. But before we get there, maybe this will lead to that question. Um, like <clears throat> in the area of black theodicy, like what are some, some aspects of it that are underdeveloped that you're hoping to tease out in your studies? Yeah. So, so black theodicy, again, is trying to answer those, those three propositions, trying to hold three propositions together. God loves us, God is omnipotent, and yet there's evil and suffering in the world. So there are, yeah, it's, it's kind of, I'll probably, I'll need to talk about the different theodicies actually to, just to, yeah. to show how, how this works. So, so there, basically what, what the issue is, is that you need to, or at least the problem is on its face is you need to choose two of those propositions and, and abandon one of them in order for, for it to work. So we want to affirm that all three of these things are true, but the, the atheist or the person that is um, trying to solve this uh, theodicy problem is thinking, well, all three of these can't be true at the same time. That's our, our natural reaction to it, uh, just on the face of, of it. What Black Theodicy is trying to do is either to... Um, I guess the word would be capitulate <laughs> and abandon one of those uh, one of those ideas and, and form like a, a and shape a new type of um, view of God in terms of his nature and what makes God God. Mm -hmm. Or you can do um, what I'm suggesting and what Cone suggested, which is to hold all three of those uh, propositions together and just do the theological work that's necessary in order to, to, to make that happen. So there's kind of, um, uh, there's like a far right, I, I, and I don't mean this in any political way, but there's like a, there's a very far right, like conservative view. And then there's like a far left, um, you could say liberal or progressive approach to doing theodicy. And so I'll, I'll talk about the extremes and then maybe we'll, we'll get to, you know, what, what I think Adventism should do, which is uh, right, right in the middle. But um, I'll talk about the, the more conservative approach to, to black theodicy. So the, the more conservative approach is, for the most part, it's retaining these ideas of uh, suffering as being redemptive. Um, and what, what you do, what happens is that you find this type of thinking more in um, black churches that are influenced by Calvinism. Um, okay. And by Calvinism, what I mean is a, a, a deterministic uh, worldview. So everything is determined. Nothing happens that God is not actually in control of. In a sense, like the world is like a, a, a puppet show and God is just pulling the strings. So in that particular worldview... You have certain individuals like uh, Anthony Carter, who wrote a book, uh, Black and Reformed, where he is laying out his theodicy and trying to explain uh, why God allowed the transatlantic slave trade. Why did God allow American chattel slavery? And what he essentially comes down to the, is that our suffering as African-Americans was for the glory of God. Mm -hmm. um, so, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so... <laughs> 
that problematic. of course yeah that's problematic it's not going to be the most popular uh theodicy but it is uh it is one of those uh, options out there that some people have have adopted and they they go with that and the reason they go with that is because of those Calvinistic presuppositions that when you look at history, you are actually seeing the will of God. Hmm. And so when you see the transatlantic slave trade, when you see American chattel slavery, when you see the Holocaust, when you see the genocide of Native Americans, you're seeing the will of God. And what because was God will? is the one. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and that's that's the real issue is that the answer to that question of what then was his will is problematic because it always goes back to, well, it was for God's glory to manifest his way? glory. So in, in the way of, and the, the macro answer to this is that when God punishes sin, when he uh, condemns those who are not elect to eternal damnation in hell, that those, their suffering, the, the punishment of the sins that, that, uh, that the loss committed, that, that, that glorifies God because it shows that he is just. Mm. But keep in mind, and this is the, in, the inconsistency, and I, mm. I don't want to do, I, I don't want to make this too simplistic because I, I know there are, <laughs> I, I want to be respectful to the Calvinistic tradition. It's like half of Christianity, so I, I want to be respectful. But to, at least to me as an Armenian, that, that just does, it, just, it just does not work, the Calvinistic worldview, that God can punish sin, but yet he is, after all, the, the puppet master. He's the one pulling the strings. So he could have prevented people from, from uh, committing sin. He could have stopped them, but he doesn't. And in fact, it's actually his will because he, some, God somehow believes that people sinning and doing atrocities like uh, the slave trade and, and, and American child slavery, that that increases his glory. Now, Anthony Carter has some other uh, reasons as well. So, for example, he says that um, one of the reasons that God may have allowed the transatlantic slave trade and slavery was to re-Africanize the Christian church. So he proposes this idea that Christianity in Africa was basically non-existent, which we know is not true. Um, the Ethiopian and Coptic churches, which are African churches, those have, have uh, are just as old as, as Rome, uh, maybe not as old, but pretty much getting pretty, pretty close to being as old as Rome and as Eastern Orthodoxy. So the idea that Christianity is not in Africa is not, that's not uh, true. Um, and so, but that's his idea is that, is that it, it allowed for God to re-Africanize the church, re-Africanize since the, the uh, displacement of Christians after the Arab invasion of, of North Africa. So that's, that's where he's coming from. He also says that it gives, uh, and this is this uh, Christian par excellence idea, it gives an example of the power of Christ in terms of forgiveness. And so the, the onus is put on black people that, we need to recognize that our enslavement and suffering was the will of God. And once we uh, accept that, then it will enable us to forgive uh, our oppressors. And, 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 and that will be a beautiful demonstration of the power of Christ. So that's, mm. that's, his, uh, <laughs> that's his theodicy. Um, for me, it has too many problems. It is not a viable option. But for other people, it is a viable option, especially if they come from that Calvinistic uh, worldview. If you accept that premise, then I, I can definitely see how um, yeah. how his system uh, works. Uh, it just doesn't work for me because I, I believe in free will. So, <laughs> yeah, and it seems almost like, and I don't, you know, you know more about this than I do, but like, why would God punish people while before their judgment? Right? Like, it's like mm -hmm. chattel slavery is a living hell. Right. Yeah. Like you, you, you're already condemning them to this life of hell, but before they've even committed sin. Right. I don't know. So I don't I don't know what what they're maybe, you know, what the, the reasoning is about that. But yeah, it's it's a little indecipherable, at least for, for me and especially because of my my worldview. Maybe if I had a Calvinistic worldview, determinist worldview, it, it would make more sense. But yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't. So so that's one that's one side of the spectrum, a, a determinist uh, worldview. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have um, what we would call process theology, um, 
which in, in process theology, the world and, and God are essentially uh, synonymous, whether you believe in a pantheistic or a panentheistic pan God, uh, either God and, and the world are the same thing, or the, at least the world is inside of God or is the, the physical body of God. Um, but essentially in process theology, God is very loving, very empathic because the body is a part of him. He feels all of the sufferings that we endure as, as human beings, which is a very comforting thought. But in process theology, God does not directly act in, in the world. So in that schema, God could not have stopped the transatlantic slave trade. He did not have the power to do it. He doesn't have the tools. He doesn't have the mechanisms. He, he, he just couldn't um, in, that, in that worldview. Um, and so he feels our suffering. He is empathic with it, uh, or he feels empathy with, with us, but because he feels it as well, and he's, uh, as one uh, person, he's the most moved mover. So he's, he's, he's very moved by our, our uh, experiences, but he just can't do anything about it. He's and not so that's. To action. Right, right. It, and it's not because he doesn't want to act, it's because he can't. He doesn't have it's, the ability to act. And, and what's the non ability? Like, is it because he is not, because he's bound to human will? He can only act through what human agents will, or what, what's the rationale? Right. So there's. Um, there's a particular author, his name is William Jones. He wrote a book called uh, Is God a White Racist? And I, I don't think he's a process, uh, I don't think he adopts process theology, but what he proposes is very similar. Um, and so what he says is that we need to move towards a, humano, a humanocentric theism, which is like one step removed from just uh, a humanist or secular humanist <laughs> approach to life. So he believes that there's a God, um, but just as similarly as process theology, he does not believe that God act, actually takes action in the liberation of, of oppressed peoples. Um, whether God doesn't have the ability or he just can't for some reason, he just doesn't. He, he does not or he cannot. And so what that leaves for us then is the question, well, if black people are going to be liberated because we want to be liberated, how is that going to happen? And that's where human agency comes in. And so human agency is very much uh, emphasized in that, that schema of theodicy, whether you take a process approach or a humanocentric theistic approach, it's all about the human agent. And so all that God can do in both of those, those schemas is inspire. He can inspire people. He can inspire um, different people to rise up in rebellion. He can inspire different people to take up arms. He can inspire people to uh, legislate different laws and, and whatnot in order to, to spread liberation uh, within an environment. But he himself, as God, cannot actually um, unilaterally make it, uh, take an action within the world be, uh, beyond just inspiring someone to, to, um, to expand liberty. So that's, that's the schema that, that they have. I'm not an expert on process theology, so I don't know all of the mechanisms behind that, but that's the, the gist of it, is that God feels what we feel, but he just cannot actually act in the world that we have to to be the actors in the world and i will say this i don't want to be labeled as a heretic but if i had to choose between those two different schemas between what anthony carter puts out and what william jones puts out in, in terms of a determinist worldview versus you know maximizing human agency i, I would go with maximizing human agency um but but there is a a, a third way which is what what i want to get into uh, a little yeah. bit later. So, yeah, but I, 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 maybe I should just, just as a summary, yeah. what happens with the determinist worldview is that out of those three propositions, the love of God is compromised. So, mm. so Carter would affirm that God is all powerful and he would affirm that evil exists. 
He would also affirm that God is, is loving, but the way that he describes God's love does not make sense, I think, to the average human being and definitely mm-hmm. not to the, the, you know, the common you know, African-American in, in, in the pew. So really what he does, he's compromising the, the love of God in, in his schema. On the other hand, when you look at process theology and you look at the humanocentric approach, which is uh, on this progressive wing of black theodicies, what they're doing is that they're affirming the love of God. I mean, they maximize it because we're, we're a part of God's body, right? So mm-hmm. everything we feel, God feels. But they compromise his omnipotence. They compromise his, his power. And so that's the, that's the way that they've gone. They've, they looked at the three propositions and they picked two that they want to affirm. And then they compromise a, a third um, but I think as, as Adventists, we need to go with, with, uh, with James Cone and actually hold all three of those together. Yeah, I think it's a hard one to do, right? Uh, just yeah. because, and, and I, can, I can see it, like even in my own life, I think there is a desire to want to bring purpose out of suffering, right? Especially if you, you know, if, if you're just kind of minded that way, like, like I think people don't want to go through life thinking that, you know, the things that I've gone through or the brokenness that I've experienced or the hardships that I've gone through, that they're without meaning. And sometimes I can be very pessimistic with my friends. And uh, I'm like, you know what? Sometimes, you know, brokenness just means that you're broken. Like sometimes scars just break you and you don't become a better person because of it. And I know <laughs> that's not necessarily the Christian thing to say, but it's also the recognition that sometimes not there, there isn't redemptiveness in suffering. Sometimes people like with PTSD, like you go to war and you got broken and you come back and you have all of these problems and you're spending a lifetime trying to fix it. And it didn't necessarily make your quality of life go up. It might've made you a more empathetic person uh, awakening you, like you said, to the sufferings of other people. But the fallout that you have with your family and with your friends and even the way that you're able to hold a, a career down or the drinking that might develop like there or the suicide uh, attempts that develop from that, like sometimes brokenness just makes you broken. And there is a desire, even on a personal level, to be like, I want to pull something out of this. I don't want to get cheated for my suffering. I paid a lot for this. Right. Um, and on the other side, you know, to, to believe like, God, I have to believe that you're loving and I have to believe that you do love me. And so I'll just have to assume that you couldn't have done anything in this situation because you allowed it to happen. And I don't know how to have a relationship with you uh, if I believe that you're loving, but I know that you allowed this to happen to me. So I'm very interested in seeing how you meld those (laughs) two together and answer the million dollar question. (laughs) Yeah, Um, so I... I think you laid it out well, that the tension that, that people people feel. And, and I think depending on, on your psychology and depending on your background, you're either led in one of two directions. Either you are led to the idea that either God is impotent in some way, that, that he's not omnipotent, or you're led in a, in a different way that there's something deficient in, within the love of God. Um, so we're all tempted to go one of those, one of those two ways, or you deny both that God is not omnipotent or, or, or loving, um, which is also an option. But I, I think the, the genius, the uniqueness of Adventism is that it provides an environment or, or a worldview in which we can actually hold those three propositions together. Yes, there's evil in the world, but yes, God is still loving, and yes, God is still omnipotent. Um, and we, we can talk about that as to how, how that works. Um, but yeah, you've, yeah, you've got the spectrum, and then you've got, I think, a third way that is biblically faithful, but also um, somewhat ameliorates, and I want to emphasize somewhat <laughs> ameliorates, the, the cognitive dissonance that, that we have in terms of our own personal experiences with, with suffering. So yeah, I don't know, I, do, I, do you want me to go into that now or did you have yeah. another question? <laughs> I, I definitely think you should go into that and maybe even differentiate. Yeah. And we talked about like some of the theodicy questions that we try to answer on a macro level, don't equate on a mezzo and don't equate on a micro. And what are those three levels of right. theodicy? 
Right. So that, that's that's a very important thing to to bring up. So we we cannot, and, and this is one of the problems I think that we have in in Adventism, um, because I think we, we know we've we've got something special, and we want to um, just throw it at at everything <laughs> as, as as the answer without contextualizing it and, and that you actually may do more harm than good so so um my 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 point is that there are various levels or um layers uh, to the problem of of evil so you have that big macro question of the origin of evil itself right so wh- where did evil come from why why is there evil in in the world and I think for, for most, question, uh, most Christians, they're trying to address the problem of evil on, on that level, especially in Western theology, because you, we're dealing with secularism and, and atheism, right? So that's, that's a, a very potent weapon uh, that the atheists uh, can, can wield against us, is that, hey, uh, you guys haven't solved this, uh, this paradox, this, these three propositions here, you know, what, what are you going to do with that? Um, but the thing is, is that I think we have, as, as a whole, we have answered that question adequately, uh, maybe not satisfactorily, but, but adequately. We have answered in terms of it's plausible for evil to exist and for there to be a God who is omnibenevolent and omnipotent. And one thing I would point people to is, is Alvin Plantinga's uh, free will defense, which is essentially saying that um, for God to create creatures with free will is a a necessary condition for evil, but it's not a sufficient condition for evil. And so God is not responsible for evil. Creatures are responsible for evil. And especially, you know, from a Christian perspective, we would say that Satan, the first creature to engage in evil, that he's the one who's responsible for evil. It's not, it's not God. Um, or at least we can say that Satan is the one that's culpable for evil um, in, in that sense. Um, that's, again, that's the macro level. And the temptation is to take what Alvin Plantinga proposes and try to put it on, you know, <laughs> or, or, or give that as a, a reasonable answer or an appropriate answer to a rape victim or someone who suffered from child abuse or something like that. And that's, that is not, that, that's not the right thing to do. Uh, hopefully you've had that conversation before the tragedy happens and maybe you can have that conversation years after the tragedy happens but that's not what's needed in that moment at that time. <laughs> so, and, and, and Plantiga said this. He said, my free will defense is just that. It's a defense. It's not a theodicy. You could go further and make a, a theodicy and say that, for example, as we do with the great controversy, that not only did God create free uh, creatures with free will, but he needed to create creatures with with free will in the sense that if he was going to create they had to have free will because God is a God of love and love requires choice and if he wants to engage in a love relationship with his creatures they need to have free will and so that is why evil exists it still doesn't make God responsible the responsibility is still on creatures but it's uh it that's how you would move it then planting his defense into a theodicy but again that doesn't answer the question of why the Holocaust. It, like, it answers like why evil exists, but it does not answer the quality and, and the, the intensity of evil that, that, is, that exists in the world and, and the widespread uh, of evil at those levels of intensity that happened in the Holocaust and American child slavery. So again, that's the macro level, answering you know, the origins of evil. But then you have this meso level which I, I would uh, equate that to uh, things like genocide, um, things like uh, the African-American experience, things like what happened to the Native Americans or the Jews in the Holocaust and the, and the po- pogroms in, uh, in Eastern Europe and these types of things. That's what I would count as, as like that middle 
uh, layer, the meso layer, and also things like natural evil, like uh, quote unquote natural evil. <laughs> evil is not natural though, but, right. but things things like uh, um, hurricanes and earthquakes and things of that nature. That I class those things to together, and then you have uh, individual instances of evil that happened to us, you know, in, in our own personal lives. So I think we need to keep those distinctions, these three different levels, a, a micro level at the individual level, the meso uh, layer, which is, you know, affects very large groups of people or is like ma um, uh, mass genocides and these types of things. But then you have this macro question, which is, you know, where does evil come from to begin with? And just understanding that whatever theodicy you come up with, it might only address one of those layers. So the, typically the way that we uh, explain the great controversy, to me, it only addresses that, that top layer question, that macro layer of where did evil come from. It doesn't answer the question of, of horrendous evils that take place at the meso layer and, and micro layer where people feel like their entire lives have been engulfed and defeated by evil. I don't mm -hmm. think the great controversy, at least the way that we typically articulate it, answers, answers those, those types of questions. But uh, fortunately, there's been some, some new research, some new theological work that I think it does uh, expand the great controversy and, and uh, provide some tweaks or some, some modifications that hold the basic idea intact, but also allows for this environment where we have uh, uh, at the meso and micro uh, layer, uh, and, and that could actually even address or at least provide a plausible environment for black theodicy to, to take place that is still faithful to scripture. Please stay tuned for next week as we continue our conversation with Ingram London as we discuss Black Theodicy and try to provide some answers to some pretty difficult questions. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at Advent Next. You can follow me at Kendra Arsenault with an X, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>